He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is your host, Siddhartha Vaidyanathan. And I'm happy to be joined today by a very special guest, a revered broadcaster from the Caribbean, someone who over the years has come to be known as one of the voices of West Indian cricket, Joseph Reds Pereira. I'm going to be calling him Reds throughout the show. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, so so happy to have you here, Reds. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, privilege for us to have you on the show. Well, it's an honor to be part of your show. The great Sabbath and weeks late once said, it's nice to be remembered. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I must mention here to many of our listeners who are not aware that um, uh, Reds is uh, one of the most prolific uh, radio commentators and broadcasters of all time. Uh, he has covered 152 test matches. Uh, yes, uh, take a deep breath on that. And uh, close to 500 other games that include one-day internationals and first-class games and list-day games and all the other games that you can put into it. Uh, in 2019, uh, during the India-West Indies test at Sabina Park, uh, which was Reds' 150th test, uh, some of you might remember there was a little a moment, a special moment during a break where uh, Reds was felicitated by the uh, cricket board. So... Yes, uh, wonderful to have you here. Reds has also written a lovely book called Living My Dreams, which I will link to, uh, where he talks about his uh, growing up years and his broadcasting years. And it's also, I must mention here, that uh, apart from being such a prolific cricket broadcaster and commentator, Reds has also done uh, an enormous amount for other sports in the Caribbean, and, uh, you know, whether it's Olympics or uh, basketball or everything else, he has covered five Cricket World Cups, and that is a lot of World Cups. But uh, if you read the book, you'll realize that there are also so many other special occasions like the Olympics and uh, various other uh, boxing bouts that he has attended. So, Reds, um, take us back a bit. Uh, you're uh, uh, back to the time in the 30s and 40s where you were growing up in uh, Guyana. And tell us a bit about uh, your love for the game and how your love for cricket developed. Well, I was born um, in the Essequibo River in one of the smaller rivers called the Pomeroo. And my father was a humble farmer. And uh, we had uh, some knowledge of the game called cricket. Um, and my father would take us to uh, watch a cricket match, which was really almost like a, a festival that led to music and dancing after. But <clears throat> I really um, only began uh, to get into the game when we came to Georgetown from the Pomeroon to go to school. And um, we had to learn about life in the city and Slowly but surely, I began to listen to the sports news, and then I began to follow um, the cricket news. And, you know, I was eight, eight years of age when I came to Georgetown, and 
um, you know, it, it was a new beginning, so, so to speak. Very, very shortly after that, there was 1915, Ram and Val and Weeks World and Walcott and the West Indies dominated England and all the commentaries was coming through. John Allett, Rhett Austin, E.W. Swanton, you, you name it. And I got attracted to the commentary and the poetry of the commentary and some the intensity of the commentary. And I listened to, in 1951, on the back of a chair, I was about 11 years old when the West Indies uh, went to Australia. And I listened to Johnny Moyes and Alan McGillivray and Michael Charlton. Uh, they have a different style than the English. And I, I like the intensity. But I must also tell you that um, as a child growing up, I had a major stammering problem. So my love for the game, I don't think I had any thoughts of ever turning into a commentator because I just didn't have the wherewithal, so to speak. Um, and uh, it, it was the reality, but that didn't stop me from following the game. And I did my, I saw my first test match in 1953 with V.S. Azari leading India with Ram Chan and, and, and Gupti and M.L. Apti and uh, Guy Quad and, you know, all the Indian players at, at that period. And that basically was my early start. Fantastic. Uh, yes, uh, remarkable indeed that uh, given that the challenges that you had with stammering uh, early on, that you went on to become such a prolific broadcaster. I mean, I think it's a really inspirational story uh, for anyone who is struggling, not just with stammering, but any kind of speech impediment, that how uh, someone like you could actually bridge that gap and go on to do that, which then brings me to cricket commentary. There is a certain rhythm to cricket commentary, isn't it? Especially the radio broadcast that can really help one uh, become a better speaker and a better talker if one practices it. And you have mentioned too in the book and in the uh, in some interviews about how uh, you used to actually repeat what several cricket commentators said and that really helped you overcome this uh, impediment. Well, my mother was, you know, one person who played a major role. She would allow me to lie in bed and um, I will do imaginary commentaries on uh, Linwall bowling to, to Warrell and, and Staten bowling to Sobers and Kanai. And I will do imaginary test matches and do a couple of overs from Trent Bridge and might describe the weather being overcast and gloomy and so cold and gray, not even a bird will appear. And um, she allowed me to fantasize, and I did football matches with England versus Brazil, and I did the great boxing matches from Madison Square Garden with Ezra Charles against Joe Walcott and uh, Joe Lowy uh, against Max Mellon. And, um, you know, it, it was an opportunity to use words that I will not normally use. Can you give us an example? Well, I couldn't say Richardson, I couldn't say Richards, I couldn't say Rodriguez, I struggled to say Sri Lanka, right? 
and the S's and R's, the S's and R's gave me heaps of, of trouble, heaps of trouble. Absolutely, yes. Uh, it's it's uh, wonderful that you were able to, uh, you know, take use cricket as a device by means of getting over it. Um, in your book, though, I mean, talking about cricket and the love for the game, in your book you mention a lovely little anecdote about a gentleman in um, Guyana who back maybe in the 40s or 50s, way, way before uh, technology had uh, arrived in those parts and way, way before we had things like the internet, um, he used to have a board outside his store where he used to write the scores of every major game that was going on in the world. And he used to update that every once in a while. So people used to go to the store just to check out what was happening in, say, New Zealand or in uh, England and just have a nice little conversation around it. I found that a really wonderful anecdote. It was a Guyanese of Chinese origin. Um, he ran a, a shop, uh, I better describe it that way, um, where you have pastries and you have soft drinks and whatever not. And um, he listened to the BBC, obviously, a lot because... Uh, sports roundup came down the line and he will have all the county matches of the day and he will have all the updates on the international matches and scores of people I'm talking about 20, 30 people will be outside of his shop um, and when I started to do some work for a radio station I might get the latest scores by going there and sometimes I might actually go there at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning to, to get the latest score before I go on to the radio station. So he was unique. I mean, you know, cricket lovers are, are a very special person. And, and you, can't, you can't just um, buy that. You have to have that within you. Absolutely. Um, one of the... You know, other things that strikes me when I read the book is how much of an initiative you had to take to actually get into the broadcasting business. I mean, it was not like you walked into a radio station and then you got a chance. You actually traveled all around the Caribbean and uh, there were times in which you, you know, spent quite a bit of money and went to Jamaica and to just watch events and to get to know the game. So there was a tremendous amount of uh, personal initiative that you had to take to actually get into the business, isn't it? Yes, well, I, I watched all the matches at the test ground board. There was the intercolonial series where all the Caribbean nations came to Guyana. So there was a lot of cricket. Uh, to watch. Um, and I would go to Trinidad, which is about an hour away, and see the test matches at the, at, at the Oval. And I will get into the box and sit behind the commentators and hear their style and, you know, just get au fait about, about the ball by ball and things like that. Um, and it, it was one way of picking up knowledge and gaining experience. So when my time came, I, I would have been there and done that in a sense um, before I did my first match on my first first-class game. 
So uh, would it be fair to say that the first test match was uh, sometime in this, uh, was the uh, series against India in 71 or was it much before that? No, no. My first test match was uh, 71. My first first class game was 1969. Um, Guyana played Jamaica at Sabina Park. And then I did Barbados, Guyana. I did the Combine Islands, uh, Guyana in Dominica. But my first uh, test match was 1971 when Gavaskar scored all those runs on Sardisai. And um, a great Indian commentator was part of, of the broadcast team, Barry Sabatakari. That was my first test match, 1971. So you began with uh, Sunil Gavaskar pretty much, uh, both of you together. <laughs> Funny enough, he didn't play in the first test. I think Jayanti yes. Lal opened the innings. Um, I, I, I'm told he, he might have been uh, hurt or not well. or Yeah, he had dropped. a finger injury. Finger injury, yes. I think. Yeah. But he started at border and then he continued. Uh, there's a great calypso made by Lord Relator. Um, which uh, you must Google and uh, play it on, 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 on your show. Yes, I will link it for sure. Uh, it is a wonderful calypso. Uh, uh, not at all, not at all. You couldn't get Gavaskar out at all. Uh, so that that's... Uh, uh, and it also has uh, lovely uh, mentions of all the players who played in that oh, uh, yes. uh, series and that tour. And it started beautifully. Lovely day for cricket. Blue skies and gentle breeze. <laughs> I wouldn't go anymore. <laughs> I, I shouldn't stop you. You're such. You have a good voice. You have a great voice. No, 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 no. <laughs> let's 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 get back to the main discussion. <laughs> I have to. I have to mention a little anecdote when you mentioned that um, uh, uh, calypso. Uh, in that calypso, Lord Relator, in a small part of it, mentions that Joey Carew, who was one of the players at that time, he pulled a muscle during the series, and uh, he couldn't play. So he says, Joey Karu pulled a muscle, and that's all he says about Joey Karu. But then in 2006, I met Joey Karu. He was a, a West Indies selector at the time, and I was talking to him about 71, and I then said, I do know one thing about you in that series, that you pulled a muscle. And he says, how on earth do you have that bit of information? And I said, I listened to the Calypso, and that's all I told yeah. <laughs> yep. Yes. So um, uh, moving to the 70s, you write very um, fondly about the 1975 World Cup in England, which, um, you know, West Indies, of course, won um, that famous final when Clive Lloyd made that 100 and um, the longest day of the year when uh, Australia tried to chase it down but couldn't. Uh, tell us a bit about 75, uh, what an impact it had on you. And of course, that famous game when Derek Murray and Andy Roberts took West Indies home against Pakistan. Well, um, after India, I got an opportunity to do the New Zealand tour in 72. And then Australia came with Ian Chappell in 73. And by that time, Tony Kojo was well established. And the Caribbean Broadcasting Union uh, decided they will send a, a team and um, they worked with the English authorities and the, and the, the Caribbean um, organization based in London for broadcasting and we were inserted with um, all the English commentators John Allett, uh, Christopher Martin Jenkins, Henry Blofeld and 
Trevor Bailey and Freddie Truman. Uh, and we um, covered all of the West Indies matches which went back live to the Caribbean and maybe live to other parts of, of the world. And uh, it, it was a great occasion. I mean, um, the, uh, the West Indies started well and did well throughout, except that game against Pakistan. Because it was played at Boston, and had the Western Indies lost, we would have been able to pack our bags and head home because the Western Indies would have been out. It was, I think, a kind of a quarterfinal. Um, so long ago, I can't remember when it was a quarterfinal. But um, what seemed to be a very small score, um, you know, with all, all the Western Indies batting lineup available, you thought that the Western Indies would have won. Um, you know, you had the uh, great start of Fredericks and, and Greenwich at the top, and then the illustrious names that followed. Well, sometimes, you know, one leaves it for the other. Well, if, if, if Kanai doesn't get it, Richards will get it, or Lloyd will get it, or Kalichran will get it. Well, nobody really got it. And we were 203 for nine when Andy Montgomery Roberts walked out to join Derek Murray. And by that time, the man of the match, uh, adjudicator Tom Graveney, had already awarded a Pakistani the award for man of the match. <laughs> Not knowing that the, the, the great um, stand of what, six or four runs, and the entire Edge Boston was standing up. It was a single here and a single there. And Two here, and the West Indies got to 220 for nine and 230 for nine, 245 for nine. I mean, it was like a, a theater, you know, it was like a, a, a theater in a sense. When Andy Roberts eventually pushed, I think the polo was Amanot, down to Medan and ran for the winning single, Roberts kept running totally. And ran totally off, left Maurice standing. And of course, the crowds ran on. And speaking after to the late um, Sir Clyde Walker, who was the manager of the West Indies team, he said, big men cried. Big men cried after that last run. And during the, the, the drama of the stand, nobody in the West Indies dressing room wanted to leave their chair they might have wanted to go and get the refreshment. They might <laughs> want to go to the toilet. But just in case um, the, their action had, had, had somehow the other um, affected the, 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 what was happening in the middle, they just didn't want, want to move. And I mean, I would think the Pakistanis had their celebrations planned. Um, it was a total, a total relief when the Westernese won that. And and you had uh, quite an extended uh, session of uh, for commentating on that game right at the end, right? Yes, I, I, I had taken over, um, I, I think uh, it was Tony Cozy, it was an English commentator and then myself, and I should have handed it to somebody else. And when I started to suggest there'll be a change, they said, no, Keep going. Um, don't change the commentator. They just felt that 
you know, what looks good, keep good. <laughs> and I, I actually did the, the, the last ball, and I must tell you honestly, there were tears in my eyes. Wonderful. And uh, I think the bowler would, would have been Wasim Raja, uh, because when I'm looking at the scorecard, it's Wasim Raja who has finished that game. So, uh, but but the one other thing about that game, though, is that uh, the current uh, uh, West Indies commentator, again, uh, one of the uh, fantastic voices of Caribbean cricket, Fazir Mohammed, has mentioned how he was a young boy when he heard the radio commentary of that match when he was perhaps listening to you uh, calling that match. And he said how that match and that uh, finish really helped him uh, get on, the, get the bug of cricket commentary and uh, the love for cricket commentary. So it just shows how uh, one, you know, listening to a game of cricket or watching a game of cricket and hearing someone can inspire somebody else. And it's amazing how you calling the game, uh, you itself and Tony Cozier and everyone else calling the game inspired Fazir, who is now uh, such a big name in commentary. <laughs> yes, um, I think that, that was a blessing in disguise that he was motivated by, by that. But I think the, the how the game ended, um, I think uh, really, I'm, I'm told that in the Caribbean, traffic stop, buses stop. Um, parliament stop, cabinet stop. Um, you know, everybody just could not um, move away until it was all finished. I mean, it, it was high drama. Yes, it was uh, high drama. And then, of course, uh, you should tell us about the final because uh, it was the first uh, men's World Cup and uh, the game went on late. Uh, longest day of the year, as I mentioned, and uh, eventually uh, West Indies uh, ended up winning that memorable match. Yes, it was quite an honor um, to do the final along with Tony Cozier, uh, along with um, Brian Johnson, Trevor Bailey, Freddie Truman. And um, the West Indies didn't start all that well because we were Three for 51 when I got my first stint. Fedrix had uh, hooked Lily for six, but slid uh, onto the stump. stump. Uh, he had gone. Greenwich then went. Kalicharan then went. And when I got, when I got on for my first stint, Rohan Kanai was coming out to join Kanai. He originally was not in the side. Uh, Gary Sobers uh, pulled out, Kanai was added. And what a tremendous partnership of contrast between Captain Lloyd and Kanai. It was the power of, of Lloyd off the back foot or driving and the silky touch of, of Kanai late cutting, driving gracefully through it to cover. It, it, it was a, a marvelous fight back when Australia seemed to have uh, picked up the upper hand early. Yes. Um, talking about uh, Clive Lloyd, I mean, you must uh, tell us a bit. I mean, many of our younger listeners may not be aware of what a, a, a phenomenal uh, batsman he could be, especially in the one-day game with that uh, absolutely, you know, that backlift and that big bat and the power that he came with. Um, as somebody who uh, perhaps saw him from a very early stage of his career, the, you, you must tell us something about uh, the, the aura of uh, Sir Clive Lloyd. 
Well, I saw, saw him playing in a trial match um, where Guyana was trying to put together um, a trial match to pick their team. And you could see uh, he was very young. He was working at the Ministry of Health and he was playing for the Demerard Club. And, um, you know, he had all the potential, but he was made, he was made to wait. He was made to wait. For example, um, initially, he didn't do all that well uh, in, in his, his first um, regional match. Uh, someone, I think, said to the then manager, the late Bertrand Gaskin, who had played two test matches for the West Indies, um, your boy didn't do well. He said, please wait. He got 196 against Jamaica in, in, in the next match. And um, there was some th people feeling that he should have gone um, to England in, in, in 66. The then West Indies um, break, Sir Frank Worrell uh, said to him, um, don't be disappointed. You might have gone to England. You might have gotten a good ball. You might have just uh, got off to a bad start. And he got picked for 1967. And he was not to play in the first test. But Seymour Nurse got ill overnight. And in about a half an hour before the game started, Sangarfi uh, Sobel says, Clive, you're in. He got 80 other in, 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 in his first innings, and I think he got runs in, in the second innings. He was quick for a big man, powerful off the back foot, um, strong through the covers. And, um, you know, if he had played 2020 cricket, I mean, he, he played a lot of ODI cricket, and he, he loved it. He was brilliant in the field. I mean, they call him the super cat. He was brilliant at, at, at cover point. And what a, a lot of people didn't know, he actually bowled a little bit in that World Cup final. People would be surprised, but it was a great final. And Australia, you know, had their chances. Um, Richards, brilliant in the covers, had five runouts. And, um, you know, at, at one time, you know, it, it was touch and go, but it, it was a great final and a great day to be alive. Absolutely. Five runouts in a World Cup final. I wonder if uh, when uh, that is going to happen again, uh, Vivian Richards uh, just stamping his uh, authority over the field on that day, um, which uh, then forwards me to 75-76 uh, when West Indies went to Australia. And you again write about that series where you had to, you, you traveled there as a freelancer. And uh, it's really interesting how you know, uh, you you bring out the uh, the era uh, and how it was for people who were freelancing at the time and who were journalists and the kindness of people uh, in cricket and how cricket got you in touch with so many people and uh, also helped you make so many friends on that trip. Yes, when you go on as a freelancer, you're on a low budget, very low budget. And uh, you really need to, to cut corners. Well, first of all, you've got to make yourself available to appear on every talk show you're invited to, even if you have to make 
an extra special effort to get there. Um, and I was able to do all the first-class matches for ABC Radio, which brought in a, a little bit of money along with Jim Maxwell and, and Neville Oliver and um, I think t Tim Lane, if I remember well. And um, I did manage to contact some Australians I knew way back in England in, in 63, and they offered me accommodation in, in, in Melbourne. Um, the liaison officer for the test match in, in, in South Australia, um, their family invited me, and their mother and father, they were school teachers, invited me to spend the, the test match period um, with them. Um, and, um, you know, you, you had that operating um, throughout all the test matches. There was always an opportunity provided by people because of, of, of the hospital, hospitality. And there were West Indians who also uh, reached out to me. There was a Trinidad couple in Melbourne, Kensington, in Kensington, Melbourne, not too far away um, from the ground. Uh, Kester and Pat um, Thomas, who opened their, 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 their hospitality to me. But yeah, it was, it was a great experience. The cricket wasn't a great experience, but up to the second test, the West Indies looked like they would have been competitive after losing the first. Great Roy Fredericks got 169, one of the best knocks ever in Australia. And nobody remembers that Clive Lloyd also scored 100 in that test match of the West Indies won. I was, in fact, going to come exactly to that game and to that innings because, um, you know, there are several uh, uh, days in the past, of course, that you wish you had uh, been able to go back to and watch the cricket. But this is one day that uh, I, would, I think I would have loved to be there on that day in Perth when uh, Roy Fredericks on a trampoline of a pitch, on tra a pitch with a trampoline kind of bounce, went after Lily and Thompson and Walker and uh, sort of made one of the great hundreds of all time. You should tell us about that innings and how it was as a spectacle, simply just being there at Perth and watching that. Well, I mean, the Australian bowling was fast and furious and aggressive. And Fredericks was one not to back away. Fredericks attacked fast bowlers. And on that day, he decided, well, you are going to bounce at me. I'm going to hook. I'm going to cut. In the earlys, there were a couple of top edges. But uh, he soon settled down. And he slaughtered Lily Gilmore, Thompson, Walker. Um, Greg Chappell, uh, by then, had taken over um, the captaincy from his brother Ian. And um, the, the rate of scoring by the Western East was, was so quick, was so quick, that at one time, Greg turned to his brother Ian and said, what can I do? And Chapel is on record, and I've heard it myself, um, saying, look, you are the captain. You have to make your decisions. Um, you know, by, by lunch, he was close uh, to, 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 to almost 100. And uh, he didn't have an opening partner because Greenwich had failed in the first. Bernard Julian opened the innings, got 28, but they did 
in fact, put on a fairly good uh, opening stand. Julian was hit, broke the thumb, and, um, you know, it was that kind of a start. Yes, magnificent uh, test, which uh, West Indies went on to win. But, of course, after that, uh, they did end up losing the next four tests, and uh, which was uh, ended up being a 5-1 victory for Australia and um, quite a uh, challenging tour for the West Indies overall. Uh, I, and I, again, I don't know when they lost a series so badly after that, maybe it took another 20 years for them to lose a series uh, in that margin because uh, they were so dominant after that. But one point I must ask you, and which comes through the book, and when we're talking about you know, cricketing friendships and things, you must tell us and our listeners about the late, great Tony Cozier, and the effect that he had on you and your career. And it seems that, you know, he was uh, like so generous throughout as it comes out in the book. And even when, uh, you know, you went as a freelancer to Australia, he would always make sure that uh, you were part of any uh, sort of uh, event where the West Indies team was invited or where he was invited. And so he comes across as a really generous and warm uh, man throughout. Yes, funny enough, we first met when he was writing for his father's newspaper. Um, and he was covering a football um, regional Trinidad Barbados Guyana three-way tournament. I was then the appointed coach of Guyana because of my work with the Santos Football Club and the Guyana under 23. I was asked to coach the side. Um, and we met um, after uh, the matches, and uh, that was my, my first interaction. It, it didn't go too far beyond that, um, but that was 1965. He was already fairly well established. And there is an interesting thing about how, how Cozier um, got into a commentary. He had covered the great... Uh, Test match fight back partnership between Atkinson and De Pisa, where Atkinson got a double hundred. His father allowed him at 15 years of age to write the test match copy for the newspaper. Um, oh, wow. At 15, he went to Trinidad in, um, I think it was 1961. Uh, to cover for his father's newspaper. Nine Barbadians were in the West Indies team, so they had a brand new Barbados-looking side. And the Trinidad journalists and the Trinidad commentators were having difficulty in knowing who's bowling, who's coming out to bat. So they asked this young Barbadian to come up to the commentary box and identify, you know, uh, who was who. And after he did that for about uh, maybe an hour, he was then invited to join the, the panel and, oh. <laughs> did his, and did his first, first match, uh, which was never uh, planned and, 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 and never expected. And he, he never looked back from that, but he was a marvelous commentator. Um, we had different styles, and one of the things I certainly never thought of doing was trying to song like Tony Cozier. I just simply wanted to song like myself. But um, we traveled for over 40 years together. I remember the brief interaction I had with him in 2006 when 
And, uh, you know, even though I I was a young journalist on my one of my early tours and uh, he was already such a doyen of the profession, he was um, uh, very kind and very forthcoming and, uh, you know, also introduced me to uh, people at the Barbados Nation to help me with some archives and things. So, yeah, it was wonderful. Um, tell us a bit about that Packer series that you went to, the second season of uh, World Series Cricket, um, you know, uh, people have described it as uh, the time when cricket changed forever. How was that experience, uh, you know, day-night cricket and watching uh, the game, uh, you know, the money come into the game, the players getting paid more, and just the whole transformation uh, that was around at the time. And also a lot of anger, I would say, from the establishment point of view of uh, these mercenaries or whatever many people were called at the time. Just let me say quickly on Kosher. I, I rate Kozia as the best all-round cricket journalist the world has had. There is no other, and I don't believe that Richie Benno, um, the late, has ever done radio, television, and write a copy for Caribbean press and, and, and world press, as Tony Kozia would have done. Radio, television, and writing. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of stress. And I think he was probably the best all-round cricket journalist the, the world has ever had. Now, back to your thoughts. The first Kerry Packer series lost a lot of money, lost a great deal of money. But Packer was a man of wealth. The Australian board had turned down his offer to cover the test series on Channel 9, although his offer was below the Australian Broadcasting Corporation offer, they chose to go back to the traditional uh, people who covered cricket in Australia. So he decided that uh, I will start my, my, my own series. So the second year, I think, they learned a lot from the first year in, in, in how they presented um, the... Uh, media to the public. Um, they change uh, a number of things. I mean, you had uh, the International 11, you had the Australian 11, you had the West Indies 11. So there was a little bit of a, a cutting edge. It just wasn't an exhibition, um, etc. Of course, he struggles to get the main grounds. We played at Waverley outside of Melbourne, 17 miles. We played in a uh, in a Australian rules ground. And that ground had one of the best displays of batting I've ever seen in my life, where Lawrence Rowe got 175 against the Australian attack. Glorious batting. 2,000 people watched it live. I think a few hundred thousand would have, would have seen it. But um, we couldn't get uh, the uh, Adelaide Oval, we had to use a, a much smaller ground. Um, in Perth, we use um, uh, an exhibition ground. But the the turning point came where um, Packer was able to get the Sydney cricket ground. And the West Indies played Australia. And uh, it started very quietly, a few hundred people I came in, and um, somehow or the other, by four o'clock, the crowd started to 
grow. And, uh, you know, it was the making of the Packer series by seven o'clock. It was almost a full house. And you, you could have a, an image of the moon coming up and Lily is running into both of Fredericks and, 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 and Greenwich. Um, it was a fantastic scene. 50,000 people watched that match. And Packer um, had made the point. Packer had made the point. And I think what tends to happen after that, the court case uh, followed which he won. And um, the agreement was reached. And cricket went back to uh, the traditional test. But the interesting um, rules that Richie Benno and others came up with, with the circle, um, uh, really was a revolution. I mean, I used to watch the Jeller Cup in England, the one thing, which didn't have any, any constraints of how many players you can have outside of the circle. And it was boring. It was very boring because people would just keep knocking singles. Everybody will be on the ground. Um, on, on the boundary, really. But um, the, the the changes that um, the, the Packer organization brought into the one-day format um, certainly uh, changed the game and later adopted by the ICC. So uh, the uh, one of the questions I had is, Packer got the Sydney cricket ground because it was not a property of the Australian board, but the property of the city of Sydney, right? That is That is the breakthrough he got. It wasn't controlled as the MCG was or uh, Adelaide Oval was or maybe the, Gab the GABA was. Um, he went to the authorities who controlled the ground and they gave permission for the Packer organization to use um, the new South Wales cricket ground. And, and an additional point about uh, Lawrence Rowe, when he made that uh, fabulous 100, there must have been a lot of whistling. He used to whistle when he used to play the play his strokes, right? Well, I couldn't quite hear it from the commentary box. But <laughs> of course. I mean, he was such a, an easy mover, you know. I mean, I remember there was one delivery outside the stump from Lily where he had put his left foot maybe on the line of the off stump. And in a flash, he just adjusted it about four inches to the right and played the greatest extra cover drive in that easy, nonchalant way. Um, you know, so graceful, uh, lovely, lo lovely hands. He was, he was probably the, uh, the easiest thing on the eyes uh, to watch, um, Lawrence George Rowe. Yeah, um, the, it sort of uh, seems to have brought uh, many people so much joy. And even today, you know, there are people who go weak in their knees when you talk about Lawrence Rowe. There was something um, extraordinary about him, especially on his finest days. Well, he was a man with a great start. He made a double hundred against New Zealand. He made a hundred in the second innings. And then against England... They broke the, the 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 doors down at Kensington and Oval where he made a triple. He made a triple against England. Overnight, he was 42 not out, if I remember well. 
And that 42 not out had a display of, of, of great shots. And the public said, what? We're going back the next day. And did they go back and did he bat? Yeah. Yeah, um, one of the one series I missed out though in between all this was uh, when India visited in 1976, uh, the famous series where they had the game where they chased 400 plus uh, to win the test and also the next test in uh, Sabina Park where uh, they uh, sort of faced uh, the barrage of West Indian fast bowling, including the wrath of Michael Holding, and uh, they had to even declare before they were all out because of the quality of the bowling. Uh, tell us a bit about that series and also about Sabina Park, which must have been uh, both quite a dramatic experience as well as maybe a gruesome at some level. Well, first of all, the, the defeat. That defeat where India got the runs um, after the West Indies had declared, Lloyd obviously thought that Trinidad traditionally a spinning, a spinning track that his spinners would, would, would have done the job. Well, they did not. And I think that led him to playing the four quick bowlers um, as, a, 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 as a team. That led him to say, look, we can't rely on our spinners. Um, you know, there's no Lance Gibbs, there's no Sagari Sobers, there's no Ramin, no Valentine Rung. Um, let's not focus on our strength. So Minor Park is probably then the second fastest track in the Caribbean. Kensington Oval was known to be that. Um, and uh, the, the West Indies attack was, was just too hot, too hostile, too quick. Back of a leg stuff um, uh, for the Indian batsmen. And um, I think Mason uh, Shinbedi... Uh, was yeah. Betty the captain? Yeah, basically. Yeah. I think Betty decided that um, I, I can't expose uh, my lower order to this. And uh, the unusual result where India declared their second innings. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, okay. So, Packer happens, and let's just move on a bit to, you know, a couple, a few years down the road when uh, you, of course, uh, uh, had one of the biggest stories of your career. Uh, you write about it uh, in the book and how anxious you were. This is about the West Indies uh, team, the so-called rebel team that first went to South Africa uh, in the early 80s uh, and how uh, somebody, somebody whose identity we still don't know, passed on this uh, information to you, uh, a deep throat of sorts, and uh, basically... You, d you felt that it was credible enough to be put on air. Uh, and then uh, the, <laughs> you were then anxious about whether this team was actually going to fly or not because your credibility was then on the line. Yes. Um, Barbados was playing uh, a regional match, uh, Kensington, and I was on my way uh, through the city to go to Kensington. It was about 10, 15 minutes away. And I stopped um, at the crosswalk for pedestrians. The light uh, was flashing. And as I stopped, this deep truth, as you described it, came up to me and say, West Indies rebel team going to South Africa tomorrow, do your homework. And he walked away. And I went 
on the Kensington. And I sat there, and I was hardly seeing the, the practice because I was, in my head, I had, so how do I find out? You know, how do I find out? How, this story can't break from London. It can't break. It, it's going to break from the Caribbean. And I called um, someone, uh, then the airline of the Caribbean, British West Indies Airways, and I asked um, a young lady who I knew, she was a bit of a road runner, and uh, I said, what are your flights out of Trinidad? And um, she gave me the flights. And I said, I explained what I was trying to find. And she said, well, you, you will have to give me some names. Now, I had to quickly think, now, who were on the edge of maybe breaking into the West Indies team? And I came up with the name Emerson Trotman, who's now um, coaching in, in Barbados. And all the names, zip, to describe her, all the names came up. So um, it, these people were going to get um, a flight out to Barbados and maybe on to Miami and then on to New York and Joburg as the case may be. Well, I did go on the air about five past one on the voice of Barbados and I got the duty announcer to allow me to break the story, but I didn't call any names. I didn't call any names. I just said, um, there is... Uh, a situation where, from all reports, the Western East Rebel team is going to um, South Africa. Uh, the team is scheduled to leave tomorrow, and um, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, all hell broke loose, so to speak, because, you know, a lot of the Caribbean nations had backed um, Nelson Mandela and, and, and his, 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 his party, uh, Jamaica, um, Guyana sent money, Cuba has sent soldiers, and it, it was a, a, a controversial um, type event about to take place. Well, the next morning, everybody turned up to see if I was right. If I was right, they would have had a great story. If I was wrong, I think that would have been the end of my career um, because I would have lost credibility. The BV plane came out of Trinidad, arrived, and nobody got on the flight. No players got on the flight. And I, I, I really felt then that, that I had made an awful mistake. And I then saw um, someone, um, they call a red cap, they, uh, they handled bag, the baggage, and they said, uh, Mr. Reds, I saw... Uh, Alvin Greenwich family brought his suitcase to a certain airline. And um, that gave me the indication that there was a bit of a decoy. So we waited for the, the American carrier to arrive. And uh, it was people deplaned, people started to get on, the flight was announced. And as people were getting onto the flight, there was a screeching sound of a mini bus coming into the airport at Grantley Adams. And there emerged all the players led by Sylvester Clark. And um, 
you know, they already had their boarding passes and quickly uh, they went through immigration onto the flight. Flight was closed, but it didn't take off because Albert Padmore, who was leading the side, arrived late. I begged him for a comment, smiling, no, no, no comment, no comment. Um, you sure about this decision, blah, blah, blah. Do you think you're going to change in, in South Africa and life in South Africa? No comment. And he got on the plane and they took off. And uh, to my relief, um, the story broke. And then, you know, I had a million calls from just about every organization in the Caribbean. And, and the BBC followed the BBC um, uh, followed it very, very um, almost day by day. And uh, two cricketers uh, went, uh, went through another route, right? Lawrence Rowe, who was the captain, and uh, someone else? And Colin Croft. And Colin Croft, yeah. Yes. Colin Croft was in Jamaica being treated for his back, right? And Lawrence Rowe um, was also the, the other person who left from Jamaica. And just before that, two days earlier, Alan Ray, the then president, was thanking publicly Rowe and Croft for not going. And lo and behold... Yeah. Two days later, <laughs> found up that they 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 have taken off. They have taken off. Yeah, um, the the sort of recriminations were quite uh, stark, and uh, the sort of the backlash that they felt were was uh, you know something that was to stay with them for the rest of their lives. They were banned for many many years, and I think other than Ezra Mosley. Uh, none of them uh, really got a chance to play for the West Indies after that. Uh, Mosley, of course, got a chance much later in life, the late Ezra Mosley, I must say. Uh, after all these years, Reds, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that you feel that uh, they should have done? Is it something that they fe you feel that there was an overreaction to? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there are two ways of looking at it. But I do not support the view by Lawrence Rowe that their going would have changed the apartheid system. If, if you had simply said that there's a, a lot of young players who cannot make the West Indies team, here's an opportunity to look after their financial future to, uh, at least for, for the next uh, couple of years. Um, I, I would accept that story, but apartheid is such a vicious system. Having gone to South Africa after democracy came, and uh, you know, heard the stories of, of the past, and read about the, the the slaughter at Sharpville, where seventy odd people were shot down, things like that, and the brutality of, of, of the townships, you know, and I. I've actually been to, to, to some of the townships. Um, no, I, I, I didn't. I didn't ever believe that um, the West Indies playing in South Africa, large crowds, would have changed the apartheid system. The apartheid system was changed because of pressure, because of what was happening with 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 the clerk having a change of mind, the release of Nelson Mandela. That was what, in fact, broke down the apartheid system. 
Um, not the Westernese uh, playing there. Um, different governments uh, took different measures. Um, the um, reaction by Jamaica was, in fact, maybe the strongest. Um, but uh, the, the, the other territories did also take action. But um, the Barbadian players were allowed to come back and, and play um, for their clubs, play for Barbados, and as you point out, Ezra Mosley played two test matches against England and also was picked to go to Pakistan. All right. So, yes, uh, the Jamaican uh, players, of course, were hit the hardest. A lot of very sad stories there around uh, Richard Austin, uh, Herbert Chang, and, um, you know, uh, you know, players who had a really, really tough time uh, later in life, um, which sort of uh, then makes me forward to '83 uh, and the uh, India tour there, which uh, again you write about in the book. Uh, one of the games that uh, you know you you mention, and which strikes me that which isn't talked about that much, is the test in Jamaica in '83 which uh, was going to be rained out almost. It felt that this was a sure shot draw, but West Indies actually chased the target in really quick time in the final session and ended up winning an absolutely thrilling game. Uh, any memories of that game? Uh, you know, these days, uh, there's a lot of talk about the run rates and T20 coming in and really uh, building on the run rates in cricket. But this is one game way before the T20 age where the West Indies scored really quick to win and uh, pull it off. Well, the fourth day was totally washed out. Um, we, we got to Sabina Park, uh, hoping that there would have been uh, an improvement in the weather and the rain would have stopped and maybe play might have started sometime in the mid-afternoon. Uh, Sabina Park was like a mini lake. And um, it was felt that um, India was still batting and um, still had a fair amount of, of, of wickets in hand, uh, and play would, con would, would have been extended uh, on, on the fifth day with India still batting. But the Westernese fast bowlers, Robertson and Marshall, were able to bowl India out very quickly. And all of a sudden, it was a game one situation. As you rightly said, almost like a, a 20, 20, 50 over kind of, of format. And um, <laughs> one of the funny things is that only 2,000 people watched the dramatic win by the West Indies because the Jamaica board didn't expect to have any kind of crowds on the last day. And when the game started with India resuming, um, there, there were very few people there. They had only opened one gate um, for the public area and maybe just a, a gate for the VIP stand and members and the media gate. All of a sudden, um, the crowds started to pour down at Sabina Park. They could not get the turnstiles in place. They could not get uh, enough officials to man the gates. And a lot of people were locked out of Sabina Park and simply had to revert, uh, go back to radio. And um, very few people saw it. Initially, the Westernese started 
I, I think that uh, Lloyd wasn't quite happy with uh, the rate of scoring by Greenwich and Haynes and sent out um, sent out uh, a message um, with someone taking a pair of gloves to, you know, get out or get on. And um, that pick, saw the rate pick up. But the man who, were, of course, really made the difference, made the difference, was uh, Vivian Richards. Because he, he came out and whacked the Indian bowling all over the place. So Sabina is a fairly small ground by international standards. And the West Indies rolled on, rolled on to win. Uh, Dujon, I think, hit the last ball into the Kensington stand for six. Uh, and the West Indies won. And uh, I think everyone was, was shocked by, that, by the drama of, of the last day. Yeah, I'm looking at the scorecard now. Uh, they chased, uh, it was 173 for six in 25, little over 25 overs. That puts the run rate at close to seven and over. And Richards finished with 61 of 36 balls, uh, five fours and four sixes. So, yeah, I mean, that was uh, back for 18, 1983. You know, that was uh, quite a furious uh, chase, you can say. And, uh, yeah, quite remarkable uh, for that era. Uh, so, '83. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, recently, uh, we were talking about you know there's always talk about the 1983 World Cup, which of course you were there too about that World Cup. But one of the games in that series when India were in West Indies, which really seems to come up whenever India's victory in the '83 World Cup comes up, is that one-day game in Burbese, uh in Guyana, which India happened to win. Uh, they weren't that uh, good at one-day cricket back then before that World Cup. But the Burbies win uh, really gets spoken about as the beginning of the World Cup journey. Uh, were, were you there at Burbies? Tell us a bit about that, about the whole atmosphere there and that game. Yes, um, the game was played at the Albion ground. And the Albion Cricket Club has produced many, many Guyana players and many West Indian players. In fact, uh, there's one left-arm spinner called Goodishish Moti who's playing against um, Bangladesh in, in Antigua. He comes from there. Uh, it's 80 miles away, and we all went by, um, by helicopter. We went by helicopter because um, you had to travel about 67 miles and then cross on a ferry, and it was felt that there would have been there's too much pressure on the players. Um, and uh, yes, it, it was a, a significant victory um, for India. Um, I, I remember one of the things that happened that day, and maybe this was a sign that something um, was going to happen um, of a different um, result in, in the game. The scoreboard... Uh, actually collapsed. The scoreboard oh. <laughs> actually collapsed. Um, it came down, and for for, for a brief moment, uh, play stopped. But um, I think the then manager was Hanuman Singh, uh, the former Indian batsman who probably should have played a few more Test matches. Started with with a, a debut hundred, and he was really delighted by the performance um, of India that day against a fairly 
strong West Indies team. You might just like to read the lineup if you got the if, if you got the figures close to you. Yes, I can pull that up right now. The West uh, Indian lineup: uh, Gavaskar Shastri, Amarnath, Kapil Dev, Yashpal Sharma, Ben Saka. Similar to what the 1983 World Cup team was, they made 282 for five in 40, 47 overs, and then the West Indies. Uh, you know, Greenwich, Haynes, Richards, Lloyd, Bacchus, Gomes, Dujon, Marshall, Roberts, Holding, Davis, which was, again, pretty much the team from the 83 World Cup, 255 for nine in, um, you know, when they lost the game by 27 runs. Yes, um, and I think it's a, a good point you have made that that might have been the turning point towards um, 1983. Um, but I think the, the, the actual final itself, um, the, the Westernese might have um, simply felt that the, the, this total, you know, was not uh, a major total, and that there, there's the enough batting um, in the Westernese lineup to, to, to get that uh, very, very quickly. I think one turning point would have been Richards being caught by Kapil Dev. Um, he was at mid-wicket. He had to turn, run away from the square, sprinted um, a good, I think, 20 meters, and managed to stick his uh, hands out and picked up what uh, was a superb catch because Richards was really starting to counterattack, and India was were, were losing a very strong position. But uh, after Richard went, um, the the fall of, of, of wickets, um, you know, it was just like nin pins. Nobody stayed. There was a, a small partnership, I think, between Dujon and maybe Marshall. Um, but uh, the, the West Indies had lost too many early wickets. Yeah, you do mention in the book that uh, perhaps had West Indies been chasing 250 or more, that they could, they would have approached the chase totally differently and might have actually won. But because the total was so small, their sort of uh, the way they went about it was uh, perhaps uh, not ideal. And uh, maybe if Richards had stayed ten more minutes, the game would have been over. But who knows? <laughs> and I think uh, also uh, Lloyd had picked up an injury. Lloyd yes, had picked yes. up an injury in the field, and his his movement uh, in the middle was in fact restricted and he may have considered maybe dropping down in the order, maybe sending Gomes a little higher. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, there uh, is, uh, you know, uh, Malcolm Marshall, again, as you mentioned, uh, played in that final uh, and uh, ended up that he never won a World Cup. I mean, he hadn't uh, played in 79, I think, uh, in that 79 World Cup. So uh, how was it after the game? Was it, uh, you know, I've heard that there was uh, quite a bit of tears in the West Indies uh, dressing room and some sort of a, a huge disappointment at the opportunity missed. Well, I didn't get to the dressing room, but right across the road, both India and the West Indies, thinking positively, had arranged some kind of a function. Um, it could have been to celebrate the victory or celebrate um, losing, or if you can celebrate losing. And um, I was invited um, to go across to the hotel, which was just 
across the road from the Lord's Gate. And um, to get to the West Indies reception room, you had to go past the Indian reception. And there was tassa drums. There were all kinds of, of Indian singing and celebrations. And the mood was, was one of, 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 you know, success, one of happiness, one of a historical win. And then you got to the West Indies um, function room. And it was totally flat. Nobody hardly... Uh, saying too much, you know. I think a couple of the people were, were trying to trying to lift the spirits, but um, it was not a, a very nice reception. Um, all all the arrangements were there. I mean, it was a properly planned reception, but um, the surprise loss was was just uh, too much uh, uh, to handle. I came out. After about 40 minutes, um, and uh, I probably would have stayed longer if, if it, the victory was the other way around. I hailed a taxi. I got into the back, and I was going to have an Indian rest meal in Edgeware Road. And it was uh, uh, a driver of either African origin or West Indian origin. And he turned to me, and he said, you lot didn't do too well today, did you? <laughs> he simply uh, cut himself off by having any affiliation with the West he, Indies. He distanced, him, distanced himself distanced, from his yeah. West Indian identity. <laughs> yeah, you lot didn't do very well today, <laughs> did you? <laughs> yeah. He took on his English identity then, I guess. <laughs> but then, of course, to follow, the West Indies went to India in '83. As, as and, your and you went too. Show. Yep. And you went too. Yep. Yes. And, um, and, and there was a big, there was a, a sort of a, a I, I won't, don't like to use the word revenge, but yeah, they, there was a, a considerable uh, sort of statement made there by the emphatic way in which they won that series, right? Yes. And I think Ven Sakhar um, probably felt more pressure as an Indian batsman than anybody else. But you, you have to admire the skills of Jimmy Amanot in the West Indies in 83 and in India in 83. I mean, you know, he probably, um, and, and there are many players that will fall in this bracket. He was a, an underrated Indian batsman, Jimmy Amanot. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that was his uh, a great, great year when uh, he had uh, fabulous tours to Pakistan, to West Indies, uh, the World Cup, of course, where he was the man of the match in the semi-final and final, and the home series against West Indies, uh, you know, ended up being. Uh, w w was that your first trip to India, Reds, or had you been there in '77 uh, uh, with Kalicharan's team? No, no, no. I was in Australia. Um, don't forget oh, when yes. Kalicharan's oh, team was there. '78 was back. We were listen. We were l listening. Myself and Tony because we would listen to the commentary. Um, in, in the morning before getting a taxi uh, to, to, to go to whichever uh, ever game. No. Um, my first trip to India was 1983, and I want to say the late Hanuman Singh played a great role in making me extremely comfortable by putting me on to a lot of people, 
um, and invited me uh, with his wife to spend a week with them in Kof Parade. So I actually lived in an Indian, um, well, Indian home, Indian flat for a period of the week, uh, observing all the in Indian culture, which was not strange to me because I come from Guyana where half of the population are, are, are from um, India originally. Yes. Um, so about that tour, uh, tell us a bit about that because, uh, you know, when you talk about um, uh, fast bowling, uh, you know, of course, you have uh, fast bowlers who do well in England and Australia and the Caribbean and South Africa. But uh, the West Indian fast bowlers of that time were so good that they managed to excel uh, even on the subcontinent. And one of the exemplars of that was, of course, Malcolm Marshall, who had such a fantastic time in 1983. Um, you know, people talk about that test in Kanpur when he got, got those wickets. But there was also, you know, the test in Calcutta where he did so well and throughout the series I mean he was he must have been one of the most astonishing bowlers to watch and one of the most and one of the smartest uh, fast bowlers to have ever played the game and one of the smallest I yeah, think one he of the was, smallest <laughs> he was I actually met Harold Larwood from the great body line series um, he was uh, at the Sydney Cricket Ground as a special guest many years later. And I will think that, that the Malcolm Marshall was maybe just uh, an inch or two smaller. Um, but yeah, you're talking about Kampoor. He, he should have also gotten 100 there because he got out into the 90s. And I think one is, there were two regrets, I suppose, in his life that he didn't get a World Cup medal because for some reason, strange reason, in, in 92, um, he was left out in Melbourne. And he swears that the late Marshall, that he wasn't injured. Um, and uh, he never got a test hundred. But um, he was, he had the ability to bowl around the wicket where many fast bowlers would have struggled. He was totally um, as good over the wicket than... Uh, Around the wicket, he was also very good. Um, and uh, he had pace. He could move the ball. He had, he had just about everything. And, you know, when you go back to selections, he went to um, India under Kalicharan, as you mentioned. I think he picked up three wickets on that tour. But um, the West Indies selectors knew that, uh, you know, that he had he had the potential to be very great. It's like the the selection of of holding to Australia in in seventy five seventy six, the selection of, of Shivnarine Chanjapal against England and and, and Border, uh, where he came in out of the blue surprise selection. But they wanted somebody um, who could stay in the middle order, and you know the the rest is is well known about the selection of, of Shep Chanjabal. Yes, I once asked um, Jeffrey Dujon, the wicketkeeper from the Great West Indies team, to, you know, if, if he were to pick out all the fast bowlers that he kept to, who would he think he was the best? And then he went through each one, one by one, one by one. And then finally he came to Marshall and he said, Malcolm Marshall had what every one of these above bowlers had. And he also 
had that little extra skid when you he would pitch the ball at a length that you would think you could drive, but then it would be at your chest height because the ball would just take off. Uh, is that an assessment you agree with, that Marshall was perhaps uh, the first among equals? Yes, consistently, consistently. I mean, you know, there the, the, the are others, um, you know, who, who would, would bowl fast. I mean, going back to Wesley Hall, I mean, he he was genuinely quick, but of course, in that time, you didn't have a speed gun to, 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 to check Hall. But if there's another name that I would like to add, the late Sylvester Clark, who played for Surrey and played very few test matches, um, people who have kept to him um, would say that he was very, very quick and very hostile. Um, but, um, you know, didn't have a long enough career, I suppose, uh, to back up that kind of feeling about Sylvester Clark. But I, I'm sure you can do your own research. Um, not very many English batsmen in the English county season uh, likes the fact that they were playing Surrey next week. <laughs> Absolutely. Sylvester Clark uh, also went to South Africa on the Rebel Tour and so couldn't play for the West Indies after that. But I remember in the early 90s, it might have been 93 or 94, there was this uh, series of veterans who, uh, who came to India to play a series. Uh, this was uh, all the players who had retired and Sylvester Clark was one of them who came. And he was bowling as quick as many of the current international bowlers were bowling at that time. And there were commentators, in fact, saying, Sylvester Clark can perhaps walk into five or six international teams even now at this age. He was a big man, barrel-chested, you know. The way I'll call him Croft would be square on as he bowled. And um, you are reminding me of a time which was the lowest time of my life because once that tour that you talked about was going on, I think it was sponsored by a soft drink company. I was lying in a Sydney hospital suffering from a stroke, um, you know, suffering from, 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 a, from a stroke. And uh, the, the West Indies team was playing the next day um, at the Sydney Cricket Ground. I decided not to go out uh, on all year's night got hit by a stroke on New Year's morning and got an email orchestrated by Tony Cosian, signed by all the players that somehow or the other arrived at the hospital, St. Vincent, and onto my room. It was really very touching, very touching. Yes, uh, this must have been 90, the New Year's Day in 1996, the day when, uh, you know, which of course uh, cricket fans might remember was the day when Michael Bevan hit Roger Harper over his head for four of the last ball of the uh, day to win that thrilling one-day game. But of course, uh, Reds was not there there because in the morning of that, he had suffered a stroke and he had to go to the hospital. And it was, uh, you talk about it, uh, you know, in detail in the book and it, how life-changing an experience it was. But one of the things that uh, really struck me at that time was that when you were in the hospital and after you had basically, uh, uh, after you was done with the tough part and when you were, uh, you know, trying to figure out uh, if you are getting better, uh, 
you know, you wondered if you had lost your memory. And one of the things that you did was you did a self-diagnosis by uh, saying, let me try and remember something from as way far back as I can remember. And one of the cricketing memories came back to you. That was so uh, touching for me to read that the first thing that you went back to was a cricketing memory. Yes, it's a Brit British guy and I was playing Barbados and Leslie White and Glennon Gibbs, who both made double centuries. I put an opening stand of 390 on, on the board. And I re also remembered, and I didn't put it in the book, I, I remembered the Indian Indian lineup of uh, Punkash Roy and Ellen Mapti and, and Mandraka and Umrigar and Patkar and, 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 and that lineup. Uh, so my memory seemed to be then in fairly good shape. Thank you. Yes, and it continues to be in good shape even today. So w did, were you uh, calling the game in uh, the test in 1992 when South Africa uh, came back into the fold and played against uh, <laughs> West Indies and Barbados, that famous match where they had a total to chase where, uh, you know, they were chasing uh, 200 uh, and one runs, they were 122 for two, and then they collapsed thanks to Ambrose and Walsh. Uh, were you calling that game? Yes, uh, myself and Tony Cozier called that game. Um, and uh, there was a South African uh, commentator. Um, uh, his name will come to me in, in a short while. But was what it Neil Mantop? No, it Neil wasn't Mantoff? Neil Mantoff. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it will come to me. Um, and uh, the, the, the interest about that game was the fact, not the historical, you know, South Africa returning to the international fall. There was a boycott um, when a, a, a medium fastballer, Andy Cummins, was not selected. He was Barbadian. And uh, there was, in fact, uh, a boycott, a boycott by the Barbadian public, because I think it was Winston Benjamin who, in fact, uh, who was selected um, in his place. So very few people saw that great West Indies victory on, on the last day. And from all reports, the South Africans had their champagne already on ice. So they had their, their celebrations all planned. And Walsh and Ambrose, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> I remember the amount of catches that uh, that Williams that Williams took. You might have t taken about five catches if you if you got the scorecard available. Yeah, I David see. Williams. Uh, I see David Williams got three catches, uh, and uh, two of Ambrose and one of Walsh, and uh, yeah, David. Williams was uh, perhaps one of the shortest uh, cricketers to play the game, and Curly Ambrose was one of the tallest. So it was a, always a sight to see both of them celebrating after the wicket and giving each other high fives. Yeah, it was a, a Mutton Jeff kind of situation. <laughs> but that, that, was a, that was a dramatic win. I mean, South Africa seemed to be going along steadily uh, towards victory. But you know the old saying, you, you take one, you take two. You know, yes. and then uh, uh, the rest will follow. It was uh, really um, uh, 
a dramatic collapse, a dramatic collapse um, uh, that happened in Kensington that day in front of about 2,000 people, if that much. Yeah, there was that uh, famous banner that said "No Cummins, No Goings," right? I mean, that that basically said that if no and no Andy Cummins and nobody plays. Uh, yeah, uh, what about the you know forwarding maybe uh, six years later to uh, or maybe seven years later to another test at Kensington, which uh, of course far more than two thousand people watched. Uh, this was of course uh, the famous match where Brian Lara made one fifty three and uh, beat Australia, uh, you know, in that absolutely riveting uh, chase. Uh, was that a game where uh, that you called, and uh, what are your memories of it? No, that's a game I did not call, I want to be totally honest. Um, it clashed with what, what I was doing, but what a great an ends. And, uh, you know, batting with the tail, batting with the tail, uh, um, you know, Lara really showed his class, and um, and he did that. He did that um, earlier in the tour in, in Jamaica, where himself yes. and Jimmy Adams had batted all day. Yes, absolutely, two hundred and fourteen, uh, and which uh, of course an innings that Tony Cozier has rated as one of the greatest innings he saw, because the, given the context of what Lara was going through and after being uh, defeated in South Africa uh, 5-0. I think West Indies got blanked in South Africa and then to come back to be under that pressure to perform like that, uh, he has said, was so good. Uh, but uh, uh, tell us a bit about Lara, though. I mean, I'm sure apart from that game, you would have called so many other games that he played. Uh, there must be something so inspiring for a commentator to have a batsman like Lara to call, right? Because he he made the game uh, that much more beautiful and that much more, uh, I would say, uh, extraordinary. <laughs> he was genius, you know. When he broke the record um, in Antigua, um, Woody Richards uh, did an interview with me and said, um, how, how would you de describe Lara? I said, genius, you know. He had the ability, he had the ability to play just about every shot in the book. Um, he was extremely confident um, as a person. Um, he played p pace and spin um, equally well. And, um, you know, he, he, he had the ability just to rise above the occasion, you know, when, when um, uh, things were were in fact necessary. I had the honor of doing his first test match. Um, it was against India, where himself and Hooper put together a pretty good partnership. Hooper went on to make a pretty good hundred against, uh, no, it was against Pakistan, and Lara got 42. But um, there were some people felt that the, he should have played test cricket um, earlier than that. But when he started, he... He hardly looked back. So, so you were in Lahore for that test, Lara's debut. Yes, I was in Lahore for that test. Um, it was by only only tour uh, to South Africa, and if you look at the to Pakistan, Pakistan line, yes, sorry, yeah. to Pakistan, um, yeah. and um, it was uh, a, a very small debut, but um, it was a sign of, of things to come.
the Pakistan team was extremely strong. Uh, the bowling lineup, uh, extremely strong. I mean, I think. Yes, you, I'm you had... lo looking at the scorecard now. Uh, Imran Khan, Wasim Akram, Wakar Yunus, Abdul Qadir. I mean, that's perhaps uh, one of the, the four of the greatest bowlers Pakistan have produced. And there was a good left arm spinner also in the Pakistan side. Masood Anwar. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, the West Indies, of course, um, if I remember well, I lost the first test. And uh, um, it, it was only a, a three match series, which unfortunately um, was maybe just too short. Yeah, it was uh, drawn 1 1. Uh, West Indies did manage to win one test. This was the third test, which uh, ended up being a draw. But uh, Lara's debut, which was very famous, um, uh, Reds. When you talk, when you say when Lara broke the record in Antigua, you need to clarify when because he did it twice. Well, I was talking about the <laughs> I was talking on the first occasion, on the first occasion. Okay. Yes. Um, well, I mean, yeah, that was very special because you know you grew up knowing knowing that Len Hutton had made three six four against Australia. And then uh, he wasn't Sir Garfield then, and Garfield Sobers broke it against Pakistan as Sabina. Uh, and you wonder if anybody will ever, ever, you know, do, uh, were able to do that. Um, Lawrence Rowe got a triple, you know, um, but not very many got that far. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, when he broke the record in Antigua for the first time, 375, there's this uh, wonderful video of uh, the footage of Sir Gary Sobers running into the uh, ground and to congratulate him. And how beautiful that, uh, you know, it's almost like uh, literally passing the baton uh, from one grade to the other. And uh, Lara went on, of course, to reclaim the record from Matthew Hayden many years later um, and uh, holds it to this day. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about as we get towards the end of this chat is the 2007 World Cup where you make no bones about the fact that uh, you uh, that it wasn't the World Cup didn't turn out as uh, it should have and uh, you are critical of the World Cup despite being involved in it. Talk a bit about that and uh, where maybe a two or three things which could have made that World Cup so much better. One the charges for the tickets were out of whack. The charges for the tickets were out of whack. Because in the preliminary games, there was just maybe one game um, of an outstanding potential. And for example, that game in St. Lucia, South Africa, Australia, which turned out to be a major disappointment because the game was over uh, very, very early. And there were many games like that um, where the charges were just over the top. Um, I want to go back to the time it was held in the Caribbean. At that time is when our hotels are normally filled. So we didn't need a World Cup to fill the hotels. And maybe... Um, the the workup should have come later, but I don't believe the English authorities probably wanted uh, the workup towards the end of April because it might have clashed with their own English season. 
But um, to have a World Cup when that period of time is normally booked, I, I just uh, didn't sort of make any any, any real sense. Um, and uh, you know, I I, I thought it, it was a missed a missed opportunity, a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think uh, you know the the Caribbean flavor was really lost because of uh, the rules that were imposed on it. There were, of course, the uh, typical, the musicality of the grounds was absent because the crowds weren't even allowed to take their conch shells and uh, all the musical instruments that they used to come in. The tickets were Mm -hmm. exorbitant and the tournament itself seemed to go on forever. I mean, there was a joke recently when Nasser Hussein said, I think that 2007 World Cup is still going on somewhere. So uh, uh, it was, uh, it it could have been so much better. Given that, uh, who knows when uh, West Indies are going to get another chance to host a World Cup. Hopefully the T20 uh, at some point, but uh, you know, let's see. But just to come back to things that happened that didn't help, when um, India lost in Port of Spain uh, to, was it Bangladesh? And yeah, Pakistan but they lost, lost both to Bangladesh and, uh, yes, they lost to Bangladesh and Pakistan yeah. lost to Ireland. Ireland, and that didn't help the crowds because a lot of the Indian, and, and I remember for the final, um, outside of Kensington, you had Indian supporters standing on the pavement offering their tickets for whatever they can get. As far as they're concerned, India was not playing, time to go home. And, um, you know, I think the same could have been said of of the Pakistanis because we had a lot of support from people from India and Pakistan who live in North America, you know. Yeah, there was that uh, famous uh, incident of uh, uh, India was supposed to, was scheduled to play Pakistan in that uh, match uh, during one of the the second stage of that World Cup. And uh, several fans had booked specifically for that game and they ended up watching Bangladesh versus Ireland in the end. I mean, the the crowds in Guyana were waiting um, for the tournament to get to that stage and uh, and, and never saw what they expected um, for teams to come true. All right. So... uh, Last couple of questions. The first one, there are a a number of young listeners of our podcast. They may be interested in, uh, you know, uh, getting into uh, commentary, broadcasting. And these days there are different avenues in which you can actually go about this online. Uh, You know, technology is improving to an extent where you can actually talk on, uh, you know, podcasts and all these other spaces and uh, other means and put your uh, commentary out there. What would you say to them? What would you say, uh, you know, is the like a couple of bits of advice for them to actually, you know, keep as a guiding lights going forward? Well, any young, any young commentator, male or female, um, I would advise that uh, they have to follow the game. They have to follow the game. And after following the game, um, you know, for a, a, a period of a, a good year, um, if they can get a tape recorder and simply go to a first-class match or go to any match and do 
like a report, um, an imaginary report on, on the state of the game after one team is bowled out, or do a 10-minute report at lunch, or do a closer play report, and play it back, um, and get that kind of, of, of experience of calling a game. Because a young person who maybe get a job to do reports at, uh, at lunch, tea and clothes um, for a radio station, really need to practice um, along those lines. Nobody is going to walk off the road and do by ball, ball by ball commentary. I mean, this is an era of technology where you have Crick Info, you have all sorts of aids to, to, to help you. You have smartphones, so the information is, is there. Um, when I started, uh, there was no such thing. There was Reuter, a news agency that you probably had to rely on whatever BBC might put out. And I think one way is to go about a simple way of getting a tape recorder, go to the ground, and give yourself some imaginary on-air practice. Um, and then you can then develop uh, that, present it to organizations, and, uh, you know, you, you just may be able to get a break in. Yes, and uh, these days you may not even need to present it to any organization because you might develop a sort of a listenership by yourself and your own yeah. platform. Yeah, and that, that would that would really help in building yeah. your profile. Yeah, um, um, certainly. Uh, that, that's a simple way to start. Don't start too ambitiously. Um, keep it simple, and 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 develop and and develop confidence. Confidence is very very in, in, in important. And about the calling itself, I mean, uh, the bits that I've heard from you. Uh, it seems that, uh, you know, you were one of those commentators who was uh, always very even keeled uh, about the commentary. You were descriptive, but at the same time, you were not somebody who was uh, unnecessarily going overboard or, uh, you know, getting into hyperbole. Uh, you you seem to have a very efficient way of commentary. And um, it, uh, talk a bit about that and the importance of that. Well, I think I learned very quickly you never go to do a game to expect a victory. Don't go to do a game and expect uh, the West Indies um, will win. Go and do a game and call the game as the game develop. And therefore, you, you would be fair, you would be um, balanced, and you, you will do justice uh, to both sides. I have always felt that one or two English commentators, um, you know, set themselves up. So when England didn't win, um, you know, they, they found themselves in, in a little embarrassing situation. And I, I made sure that I saw a test match as very sacred. I saw the opening day of a test match as almost very special. The, the ground staff preparing... Uh, activities around the ground, advertising boards being put up at last minute, crowds starting to come in, and then the players would arrive and eventually the toss would be spun. I thought there was something very, very sacred 
about the opening day of, of, of a test match. Very, very, very uh, sacred. Um, but I, I take the point. I'm very happy you, you felt that way. Um, you have to be balanced. You have to be fair. Yes. And uh, lastly, if you have to go back in your illustrious career to one session or one game, you know, which you can, which you have a chance to recall, to go back and re-commentate uh, re on, uh, would there be any such day? Something that has stayed with you for so long that you, that you are like, that was such a great day to be a commentator for that game or passage. Well, I, it will have to be the 1975 World Cup final, where the West Indies played Australia. I mean, it was a Prudential Cup. Uh, I was a young commentator. Millions are listening to you, and you, you, so you, you are aware of, of, of the importance of the audience. And uh, that had to be the, maybe the, the highlight of, 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 of my career. I mean, it was, it was a great honor. Um, the most tension in a, in a test match is when the West Indies won by one run at Adelaide. McDermott caught Junior Murray off the bowling of Walsh. The tension was immense in that game. The Pakistan West Indies doesn't quite fit the bill, but that was extremely tense. But that, that was a, an ODI game. Um, but uh, when, when you do a lot, you you can't quickly sometimes um, think of all, but quickly responding to you, that will be maybe the ones I I, I will underscore. And one batsman that you would. Uh, if you had to choose one batsman that you would watch and one bowler that you would watch, if you were given a choice? I it would could leave be anyone, that, not just West Indian. It could be any anyone. I would leave that outside the off stump. <laughs> I will play no shot in that. Because there's such a, a thin line between in greatness, such a thin line um, between great bowlers no, um, I will play no shot at that. Well, I, I, I'm not uh, asking you to actually call the greatest of them and, and judge. I'm just saying that something, somebody that you would like to watch as a pure, you know, spectacle, as a as a batsman, as a bowler, just like a, for the drama of it. Well, I, I, can, I can certainly name one person, Sir Garfield Solis. <laughs> and, and it's both batsman and bowler in one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he had, he can bowl back of the arm spin, he can bowl left arm orthodox, he can bowl seam, and when he wanted, he can bowl really fast, you know. Um, I think uh, Sobos was the, uh, the total uh, cricketer, the total cricketer. I mean, one of the people I, I never saw was George Headley, but he must have been very, very special, very special. I mean, you know, he 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 was the equivalent of, of, of Sir Donald Bradman and played very few test matches. But when you see the amount of runs he pulled together in, in a short career, because he was robbed of some seven or eight war years. I mean, you know, we played no cricket after 39 until 1948. 
Mm-hmm. And talking about leaving things outside of stump, I think the question that you have left outside of stump all your life is about the identity of the person who gave you the news about the rebel tour to South Africa. Uh, you have never revealed that, have you? Deep throat. I have never re- re- revealed that. And, uh, that was the promise I made. Yes, fantastic. As uh, a journalist, a, a great journalist never reveals his sources, as they say. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Reds. This was such a fantastic uh, conversation for me. Learned so much. And uh, such a rich career that you've had. And uh, so grateful that you are able to share so much of that uh, knowledge and experience. And I'm sure our listeners would have greatly benefited from it. And would uh, I would urge them to listen to it multiple times because you might have missed something the first time. Well, thank you very much for, for inviting me. Um, you certainly um, uh, push the old memory back, <laughs> maybe back too much. Um, but uh, your question was spontaneous, and I tried to answer honestly. And let me keep a promise. It was Gerald de Kock who came with the South African team to Barbados. Oh, yes, I should have mentioned Gerald de Kock. Uh, yes, I sort of guessed that it could be him. I would urge our listeners to also pick up this uh, book called Living My Dreams. Uh, it is uh, a wonderful read, uh, talks a lot about uh, Reds' life and career. And as I said earlier, it's much more than cricket. It's a lot about uh, the other sports that he's covered, the work that he's done, the Olympics, and uh, so many other sports that uh, Reds talks about, his journeys, his travels, his friendships. Um, and as for our listeners, the usual call out, 81allout.com is our website. Uh, Please uh, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, we are everywhere. Review the podcast if you like it. Rate it. It'll really help, uh, you know, uh, more listeners. And as you know, we are also recently republishing old cricket books. Uh, War Minus the Shooting by Mike Marcusy was uh, a book we republished late last year. And we are on the verge of publishing another book soon and uh, we will reveal that to you uh, you know in a week or so um, thank you so much and uh, see you for the next episode india have won the test match india have won the series they're going to get back for two india at home lords goes wild